He's retired from the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. She's a transnational gang expert. Been involved in History Channel and ID Television. He was an advisor to Gangland TV series and appeared as an expert in numerous episodes. He's here to talk about his experience investigating gangs and the real-life threats they bring to everybody. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. Calling us from Arizona, we have retired L.A. County, Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, Richard Valdemar on the phone. Richard, thanks so much for being guest on the show. Very much appreciated. Thank you, Jay. I appreciate you having me. First of all, i got to tell you, Richard is kind of a big deal. When you talk about gangs, he's been involved, a technical advisor in the Gangland television series. You've also appeared in multiple episodes of that show. You've been involved in programming of the History Channel and Investigation Discovery Channel. Did I miss anything? No. Well, I helped do the the music video for Michael Jackson called Beat It. I've been an advisor in several movies uh, that involve gangs also. No kidding. I didn't know that about you. You're kind of a multifaceted, multi-talented kind of guy. <laughs> I'm so glad you're on the show. We want to talk about, I think, uh, an aspect of policing and crime that a lot of people don't really have a good concept about. It's about gangs. And I'll be honest with you, Richard, I, I worked in Baltimore, and we didn't have a lot of the big gangs back then that we do. We had local things, local cliques. I understand it's changed now, but I've watched Gangland. I've watched a lot of these series, and I'm fascinated. It's probably the wrong word. I don't admire these guys, not by any stretch, because I know what they do. But I am fascinated by how they get entrenched in our society and how they can perpetrate such violent crime, from MS-13 to the 1% outlaw motorcycle gangs to the race-related gangs, whatever it might be. Yes, uh, I think we underestimate them in law enforcement. You know, a lot of people think they're just stupid thugs, but you do have to admire their entrepreneurial uh, attitude and the way they organize their groups and uh, take over territory. Uh, if they were the head of some big corporation, you would think that they were, you know, brilliant. Yeah, it's all about competition. And you, you said a great term. They take over neighborhoods, take over territory. Uh, one of the main problems I have with drug gangs is that they take over a part of a neighborhood and the entire substance and structure of the neighborhood changes. It becomes a violent area and people no longer feel safe. There's parts of Baltimore I worked in, Richard, where they said by four o'clock in the afternoon, the kids had to come indoors because that's where the guns came out. Yes, I've been to Baltimore. I taught classes in law enforcement there. Um, I love that city. That that was a great city. Um, but like depicted in that series, Homicide, mm -hmm. uh, some of those neighborhoods have gone to Yeah, it's, it's very violent. And people ask me all the time, and I'm sure you've gotten this, 
hey, uh, tell us about pulling over cars, traffic stops. And I tell them, we were so busy in the Northwest District of Baltimore with murders and shootings and rapes and robberies, we didn't have time for traffic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, we kind of say the same thing. The traffic cop was a different kind of cop. Totally different. Us who patrolled the ghetto and barrio. Yeah, it's a totally different scenario. And and by the way, it got to the point where I didn't want to stop any vehicles unless I thought they had drugs, guns, or wanted for murder, or was a stolen car. Because then I knew what I was going into. Absolutely. Uh, it's the felony stop that uh, that you're looking for. It's the one that makes the most impact and makes it safer in that community rather than a guy who was a busted taillight. Well, you did what? How many years in, in L.A. County? I did 33 years and then another 10 with the Arizona Gang Task Force uh, where I live now. So are you retired, retired now? No, well, I'm still uh, I still in, advise uh, testifying cases and uh, work with various law enforcement training groups. When you started your law enforcement career, did you think you'd be going into the gang aspect uh, or was it something you kind of fell into? Uh, that's kind of a funny story. I grew up in the uh, fine city of Compton, California. And some people say, well, you know, Compton wasn't so bad then. Well, guess what? It was very bad. I grew up in Willowbrook, which is the worst. That's like saying you're from Harlem. Okay, so I, I grew up in uh, Willowbrook area of, of uh, Compton, and my neighborhood was full of drugs and gangs. I went to Ralph J. Bunch Junior High School, which was right in the middle, right next to the projects. So first thing I learned to do was fight. And, you know, uh, the gangs tend to stay within their own race. So if you're Hispanic in a black neighborhood, guess what? You're going to fight. So that's the way I grew up. I uh, never thought I would be a, a police officer, but as one of the gang members uh, once told me, you, you should be a cop. You're a cop already because you're stopping fights and, and, you know, trying to do the right thing and all that kind of stuff. So I got to credit him for seeing that in me way before uh, I did. I was uh, I ran a teen center for troubled kids in the Willowbrook area under the Catholic Youth Organization and the War on Poverty. So, so I was real familiar with gangs and crime and drugs. And then in 1966, I joined the, uh, the Army. And it's the Army that actually put me through a bunch of tests and decided that I should be an MP. And they sent me to M- the MP Academy in Fort Gordon, Georgia. So that's where I started my law enforcement career. So it wasn't something that was really on your radar until going in the Army. By the way, thank you for your service in both the Army and uh, the Sheriff's Department. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I did experience in 65, the year I graduated from high school, the Watts riots. Oh, yeah. Um, and and that was a horrible, horrible thing. It destroyed this community. You know, tanks rolling down your street and machine fifty caliber machine gun positions in front of your house. That you know, that kind of gets your attention. And I'm sure it was in a very negative way. You know, I, I grew up in a military town. I grew up in Norfolk, Virginia, and well, I lived everywhere, but that was where I spent most of my life, Richard. And we lived with people from all over, not just the States, not just the United States, but all over the world. You have people from other countries, whether they're involved in the United States Navy or other branches of service, or they were there for training from their national armed services, what it might be. And we were exposed to people from every walk of life. And I never thought I would go into law enforcement until I was a teenager 
And I thought I was prepared for what was going to be in front of me from the Academy. I had no idea. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Has this ever happened to you? You sign up for a free email newsletter, and within hours, you're receiving tons of spam. That won't happen when you subscribe for the free Law Enforcement Today radio show email newsletter. We won't spam you. No more than two emails a week. I promise. All subscribers are automatically entered in all future contests. Sign up at letradioshow.com. Scroll down to the sign-up area. That's letradioshow.com. Back to our conversation with Richard Valdemar on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Richard is retired Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, transnational gang expert. He's been a technical advisor on History Channel programming, Investigation Discovery Channel programming. He was an advisor to the Gangland TV series and appeared in 10 episodes. And he still works, even as retired, teaching law enforcement and testifying in gang cases. Richard, before we the break, you talked quickly about how you went from Compton to the, to the Army. They put you in military police school and you, you went into a career in law enforcement. When you left the Army, did you say, hey, I want to become a cop? Uh, actually, uh, it took me a while to, to decide that because I couldn't find a job. All of, uh, all of us returning vets, I returned uh, after the Tet Offensive in 68, uh, and no, all the jobs were given to the, the people who didn't go to, to the military. So I went from job to job, and I, I finally uh, filed for both LAPD and LASD, uh, and I told my wife at the time, oh, I, I'm just going to take that job so we have an income because, I, you know, I, I'll find something else later. <laughs> and then about 33 years later, you retired. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, here's one of the uh, things that I think really helped me in my career. Uh, I, I went into police work in the 1980s when I started the academy. A lot of the people that I was trained by on the streets were Vietnam War combat veterans, and also we had a few commanders, captains and above, that were Korean War veterans, and they were phenomenal police. They were really good, Richard, about what we now call community policing. We just called regular everyday policing back then. It was about respect everybody, treat everyone with respect, especially in their household, in front of their friends, until they change the tone of the conversation. There's no backing down. They knew the people on their posts. Uh, and they were known by the people on the post in a good way. And that's how I was trained. And we'd learned that from day one. I agree with you a hundred percent. Uh, my training officer was a saint. Uh, the gang members actually had a no touch order on him, uh, not to assault him because he had helped people in the community so often. And my, my, uh, scale to measure, of uh, my leader's ability, uh, as a leader, was would I follow this guy into combat? And I had guys that I would, lieutenants and captains that I would have followed into uh, because they were such good people, leaders of men. Yeah. And the, and uh, that's an aspect, I think, of policing I hear from a lot of people that has changed. And I don't know from experience, so I don't want to speculate, but I can't, I can't go with the idea that every millennial that has served in the military, whether it be Afghanistan, Iraq, whatever it's in policing now, uh, is no leadership. I just can't buy that. I just, I just don't think they've changed that much. 
I agree with you. I, uh, there's a general attitude in our society. Like if you took a survey in the co- of college or working people back in, in our day and you asked them, is it okay to cheat? They'd say no. But if you took a survey today in the colleges, they would say yes. It's okay to cheat on your finals. It's okay to cheat at DMV. It's okay to cheat on your taxes or your wife. Uh, so that's a completely different attitude than 50s, 60s uh, people had. So when you graduated from the academy, obviously you got hired by L.A. County Sheriff's Department. I understand a lot of your people have to go through corrections first. Did you have to do that? Yes. All the Sheriff's Department people have to go through um, the jail. I did four years in the jail, but that was a good experience. Uh, I always compare ourselves to LAPD. You come out of the academy like you come out of boot camp. You know, you can whip the world. You can do everything. You can, you know, you're invincible and all that. But for us sheriffs, we go back into the jail. They take away our gun and our stick, and we have to deal. We're outnumbered in that facility, surrounded by people who are bigger, tougher, and meaner than us. Uh, and you learn to deal with people uh, in the method that you talked about. Yeah. You treat them fairly. You give them some respect. Uh, unless they change the situation, uh, you try to, you know, uh, make life uh, pleasant for them, as pleasant as you can be in jail. And they remember that. You know, they're all human beings. And, and like one of them told me, hey, we didn't, we weren't born monsters. We became monsters. Yeah. And, uh, and a lot of people, by the way, in prison, I, I say this all the time. You've got a, a large segment of the population, if it wasn't for alcohol and drugs, would never be there. Then you have a, a segment of the prison population that had five or ten bad minutes of their life. They made a bad decision. And uh, yes, they need to be held accountable for what they did, both of those populations. Then you have a percentage that are career criminals that will cut your throats, that are violent, that are vicious, and they're never going to change. Absolutely. And the gangs foster those people. They move up within the ranks uh, and become the leaders of those gangs. And the gangs control the gangs control what happens in prison. And whoever ho- controls what happens in prison controls the streets. So this is how they uh, they move up in the hierarchy and become uh, leaders of big groups. And and uh, you know they're responsible for for uh, distribution. Uh, collection and taxation of all the drug dealers, whether they're gang members or not. So they they have huge income. You know, it's a hundred billion dollar uh, a year profit uh, from human and uh, drug trafficking across the border. So these guys, it's not like they have a shortage of of money. So these guys become powerful uh, and they in become- their control of the neighborhood. They become what is called the shot callers, whether it be Aryan Brotherhood, whether it be Mexican Mafia or someone else, and usually they're incarcerated. That's right. They run the the system from inside, except uh, some, you know, we have this movement to release them into the main yard or to release them from prison entirely. Well, what do you think is going to happen? They're going to go out to the street and they're going to create more violence and more drug distribution and human trafficking. That's all going to happen because we're, you know, we're letting them out. Was it like that when you first started on the streets? Uh, no. Uh, first place I worked was East L.A. Uh, in patrol and gangs. Uh, East L.A. is called the mother of gangs. And I have to point out that East Coast and West Coast gangs are completely different. Uh, you guys on the East Coast, your gangs have a structure. 
you know, president, a vice president, and uh, ruling group, shot callers, and all that kind of stuff. And then foot soldiers at the bottom, modeled after the uh, probably Italian mafia. But on the West Coast, we have a, a different system. Uh, it's a cell-like structure uh, run by cliques, and our gangs are actually a coalition of different cliques of the same gang. So that's why in the East Coast, they're having so much trouble dealing with Mara Salvatrucha because MS-13 was born in Los Angeles and is structured like a West Coast gang, not an East Coast gang. And they, of course, are one of the most violent groups out there. I don't know a whole lot about them, but we return to our conversation with Richard Valdemar. We're going to talk about the realities of the threats that these gangs pose, not just for other gang members, not just for other criminals, but for everybody. And in particular, we're going to talk about the loose enforcement at the southern border and how that is impacting gang involvement throughout the United States. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. There's only one official Facebook page. What you do, you do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. Click like and follow. There you'll find updates about upcoming episodes of the radio show. You can contact me. We also find unique, one-of-a-kind editorials and news articles that is our facebook page law enforcement today radio show be sure to click like and follow we'll see you there return conversation with richard valdemar on the law enforcement show richard is a retired los angeles county sheriff's department he's a transnational gang expert he's been an advisor for history channel Investigation Discovery Channel, advisor to Gangland television series, and appeared as an expert in numerous episodes of that show. He's also an expert in court, and he teaches law enforcement about gangs and criminal gang activity. Richard, before we went to break, we're we're talking about MS-13, and I want to backtrack a little bit. You left the, the Army. You wound up getting a job in the Sheriff's Department. Honey, I'm just getting this job until something better comes along. And somewhere along yeah. the line, you must have fell in love with it. I did. I did. I was lucky enough to be exposed to peers uh, and mentors that were excellent police officers. So I got to love it. And plus, I actually felt like I was doing something. In 1976, I actually worked my own neighborhood for a couple of years. And I loved it. I actually felt like I was doing something uh, to make the streets safer. In 1978, they started Operation Safe Streets, OSS, which was the gang program in Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. And I was one of the original 12 selected for that. And, and I, I just loved that thing. It was, it's probably the best time I ever had in my career. And that's when you started getting your big exposure to gangs? Yeah, I worked gangs and, and that's a special, uh, organization that works only gangs. And gangs are responsible in these communities for 80% of the crime. You want to impact narcotics or you want to impact violence and whatever you want to impact, you need to target gangs because gangs are the ones who are doing those things or control those things. But 1984, I went to SPY, uh, the Special Investigations Unit, and uh, began working the prison gangs, uh, like you mentioned before, the Mexican Mafia, the Western Familia, Aryan Brotherhood, and the Black Gorilla Family. And those people control the street gangs. So if you're white, no matter what kind of white 
gang member you are and you go to prison, you're going to be controlled by the Aryan Brotherhood. And if you're black, whether you're Crip or blood, it doesn't matter. When you go to prison, you're going to be uh, controlled by the BGF. In fact, in Baltimore, you have a big contingent of BGFers mm -hmm. uh, there. So that was a very interesting thing. I got to work serial murderers uh, like the Night Stalker. I worked the Martin case, which is a child abuse case. The terrorists got a real good uh, exposure to all those kind of things. You said it was the most gratifying part of your life. Uh, that part of your career, when you worked your own neighborhood where you grew up, you felt like you had a real impact on what was happening in that community. Yes, it was a safer community. And let me tell you, since I retired, I run into people that I've arrested or people that I worked as, as a police officer. And it's not a hostile situation. Exactly. They come over and shake my hand. Yeah. So um, Mexican Mafia actually asked me to testify in, in one of their cases, and I couldn't believe it. They said, well, we don't want you to say whether whether we're innocent or guilty. We just want you to say the history of how the Mexican mafia came to be. And that's what I did. And a lot of those groups, by the way, they started off with admirable reasons and admirable right. ideology. That's right. They believe in the cause that they have to protect their people who are uh, being abused, they feel, in their community or, or in the prison system. And so they start out with all the good intentions of an idealist, but then they soon, when you form a group that's made up of liars, thieves, and murderers, <laughs> it's going to have problems. It's going to turn on you. I, I, I don't have a lot of history knowledge of Los Angeles. I, I believe a big turning point when it came to gangs was back after World War II, the Zoot Suit riots, and things started changing dramatically across the spectrum there. Am I correct, or was it later? Uh, actually, earlier. Our first gangs were 1909, the Alpine Street Gang, 1911, the White Fence Gang, 1929, the Temple Street Gang. These are all Hispanic gangs that operated in Los Angeles in those early days. And I have a different outlook than you might see on depicted on programs about the Zoot Suit Riots. At the time that war was going on, all the, uh, the able-bodied men were enlisted in the military, including my eight uncles and my father. And if, there would have been, if they would have been present during the Zoot Suit Riots, they would have been on the side of the sailors and soldiers yeah. against the Pachucos. Because the Pachucos ran the neighborhoods because we had a weak police force that was corrupt. And they controlled everything, uh, rationing food and, and uh, rubber and all that kind of stuff. And they controlled the nightclubs and the drinking and the bars. And they were just criminals. My mother, my grandmother used to call them marihuanos, desgraciados, uh, gang members, <laughs> you know, who, con who were criminals, basically. Yeah. But that's not what's the... <laughs> It's, it's it's portrayed a totally different way and I get what you're saying you know being retired cop myself I have a, a lot of animosity towards the early the early cops and uh, the the early 1900s uh, and and when I yes. see news reports about a cop doing something that's so horrific that's so out of line it's, it's brutal or corrupt or whatever it might be you know what I get angry at them too and so when I see things like that it really, really irks me. 
I mean, to a, a huge degree, do, do you get the same impact? Yes, absolutely. I mean, if you watch the movie uh, Chinatown, you see how Los Angeles was so corrupt, uh, corrupted uh, by the water district and things like that. You wouldn't think that would be the corrupting influence, but they had the money. And we live in a desert, so whoever controls the water controls how the growth is going to happen. But but if it's not that, it's bootleg whiskey or uh, you know drugs or or whatever. But these gangs take control of those situations and corrupt the police, and that's what's happening today. One of the things when you look back at our history, uh, and I used to hate this phrase, you know, those who don't know their history are, are doomed to repeat it. And I think yeah. a lot of people are forgetful. And one of the things I hear quite often, Richard, is that it's so much worse for police nowadays. And granted, on its face, it would seem like that. I, I think with social media, with the, the cable news networks, you're going to see the, the horrible things over and over and over again. But back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s, it was extremely violent. And we had a lot more police killed and a lot more seriously injured and maimed. That's right. The 80s and 90s were the most violent time during uh, in Los Angeles on the streets, you know, because we had the crack epidemic. We had the, the radical, the birth of these radical groups, uh, anti-American groups, the Black Panthers, the Weathermen, all these groups uh, formed and they all hated the cops. And, and so we saw that. But the cops have it harder now, not because of uh, their abilities or the crime that's going on, but because we're being handcuffed by our government and uh, these groups that advocate for prisoners. They're, they're all tying us up, and we can't do what we need to do. It's like in Tombstone. You know, when the, when the bad guys ran Tombstone, they called in Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday and Bat Masterson to clean it up. But as soon as they started to clean it up, then the politicians got rid of those people. Look, policing is a lot like the old saying, like, sausage. No one wants to see sausage being made. It's <laughs> ugly. It's horrible. But they all love it. And I, myself included, love it. And I want to have a peaceful society. And I want people to think that they can go to sleep at night and not worry about something bad happening in their house or their children or on their block. I want them to be blissfully unaware of how violent our society is. And quite honestly, you as a cop, I as a cop, we saw that, we experienced it, we've been there with many, many people were killed, and we bear the brunt of that, and our family, to some extent, have to deal with the scars afterwards. This is the Law Enforcement Today show. Ever miss an episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show? Never fear. You can sign up for our free email newsletter and get access to past podcast episodes. Plus, all subscribers are automatically entered in all future contests. Sign up at letradioshow.com. Scroll down to the sign-up area. That's letradioshow.com. We're turning our conversation with Richard Valdemar in just a few moments. Don't go anywhere. Be right back. One of the most frequent questions we see is, where can I find great podcasts? Do you have any suggestions? Yes, we do. So we decided to start our own podcast network on Law Enforcement Today. That's right. You can find top podcasts about law enforcement on our website and our free app. Go to letradioshow.com, click the Be Heard tab, and there you'll find the LET Podcast Network. We'll be adding more podcasts from first responders and more. Again, the 
find the Law Enforcement Today podcast network, go to letradioshow.com and click on the Be Heard in our menu or download our free app today at letradioshow.com. Return conversation with Richard Valdemar on the Law Enforcement Today show. Richard, interesting characters. Great conversation so far, Richard. He is a retired Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, uh, an expert in gangs, a transnational gang expert. He was a technical advisor on the Gangland television series, also appeared in about 10 episodes, I believe. Advisor on History Channel programming, Investigation Discovery Channel programming. He teaches law enforcement officers and, and agencies about gangs, and he also testifies in court. One of the things that, I, I'll be honest with you, I don't really understand what's going on in the southern border. I hear what the news tells me, and it, it doesn't matter whether it be one news channel or another's channel. They have their own spin on it. One of the things I know from many guests is what happens on the southern border is directly controlled by the cartels in that area. It would be human smuggling, trafficking, narcotics, you name it. Am I wrong? No, you're not. Uh, and, and it's more than just the area. When the cartels uh, infiltrate our country, they, they're in every major city. There's not a major city that's not uh, infected by this cancer of these cartels. You may not see it. I mean, I remember I taught a class in a small town uh, in uh, Virginia, and they said they didn't have cartels. So we looked for the nearest Mexican restaurant. We went inside the restaurant, and first of all, it was painted all blue and white, which are the colors traditional for the Mara Salvatrucha gang, MS-13. We go inside, and uh, the uh, dress for the cartel members was on sale there in the restaurant, uh, you know, which includes alligator shoes and, uh, you know, boots and uh, the fancy shirts and the, the mostly the the uh, belts, the heavily stitched uh, belts. And then all the uh, narco saints were depicted along the wall. Hey, guess what, buddy? you got cartel. Yeah, and that's a small town of Virginia. And you said narco saints. I saw that in a television series. I might have been narcos or one of those. And they talk about, oh, that's a narcotic saint. And I'm thinking, man, I grew up Catholic. We didn't have yeah. saints like that. I, I don't know of a, a narco saint, but that's a thing, isn't it? Yes, and there's two two types. There's the traditional Catholic saints, which they have perverted for their own use, like uh, um, St. Jude, the worker of the impossible, uh, St. Ramon uh, for silence. Uh, but, but they also have their occult uh, saints, like Jesus Malverde. In the 80s, that's where we first saw Jesus Malverde shrines inside the narco, the gang, uh, and narco groups' uh, homes. Uh, I mean, elaborate shrines. And then there's Santa, uh, uh, Santeria from, from your ex- uh, section of, of uh, the United States, uh, people from Puerto Rico, Haiti, and uh, that area, uh, bringing their voodoo and uh, the seven powers of Africa and that kind of thing in, into the Los Angeles drug trade. So we had all those things going on. Uh, the the Mariolitos were the ones who brought most of that over from Cuba. Uh, but but there's a mixture now of all those things mixed together and the worship of a, a saint they call Santa Muerte, Holy Death, who is a woman depicted in a, sometimes in a wedding gown who's also the Grim Reaper. Uh, and they worship her. They 
tattoo their bodies with her. They, uh, so when we talk about the influence of the cartels, we not only are talking about the $100 billion uh, profits they get from human trafficking and, and drug trafficking, uh, but 60% of their money goes to bribery. 60%. That's a lot of money yeah. for bribery. It's not bribing the cop on the street. It's not a $50, you know, <laughs> bill. We're talking about thousands, maybe even millions influencing our, our politics. And what do we have if we can't trust our police or our courts uh, or the justice system? We have Mexico. That's how they did it right. in Mexico, and that's what they're doing here. And by the way, when someone starts forming an idea in their head that, by the way, we're not comfortable talking about race. I'm of Irish descent. We had our time with Irish mobs in New York. The Jewish people had Jewish mobs. There were gangs of every ethnic group, every race. It walks across every social spectrum boundary we can think of. I don't want anyone to think this is just, oh, it's a Mexican thing. Everybody has some blame that need to share when it comes to this. Amen to that, brother. Um, you know, um, and when we talk about gangs, uh, who do gangs kill? Who do gangs victimize? 90%, more than 90% kill within their own race. So uh, blacks victimize blacks, whites victimize whites, and Hispanics victimize Hispanics. After all, it's the, the poor people that are being trafficked that are actually the victims of all this. And, you know, they're losing their lives by the thousands. And we're thinking that we're being nice to them by letting this continue on our, our southern border. It just so happens that the drugs are coming from Central and South America right now. But they're actually coming from China, you know, fentanyl, ephedrine. Uh, Those things are produced in China in huge quantities. And then they go into South and Central America and then come up through the narcotics chain into our country and poison us here in America. Back in the days when the, the Colombians run the cocaine, they called cocaine the poor man's atomic bomb because they were destroying the United States through the use of cocaine. Uh, and that's what's happening now. If a country did that with a military force, it would be an armed invasion. When Absolutely. people do that <laughs> in, as civilians, look, they come in, they bring drugs, they bring violence, they bring guns, they do this, and then they funnel out large amounts of money to their home countries. It is, in many places, an act of war. Absolutely. And, and that's not to mention there's been over 400 military incursions by the Mexican military into our country, including shooting at our law enforcement officers from helicopters. You know, that's not talked about, but that's happening. If we used our our military to go into Mexico, we'd be in an international incident. Right. I, I had a guest on the show a long time ago. It was a Texas DPS. He's working the, the Rio Grande area, backing up uh, customs, I believe, and he was shot from across the border, and he's dealing with lifelong pain and lifelong paralysis. Yes. And to this day, he can't get answers to the questions, who shot me? Yes. Because of politics. Because, yeah, because instead of uh, protecting our own people, we protect the people from other countries. You know, it's crazy. Richard, the southern border, everybody wants to think, again, I'll go back to what the news tells you. Some stations say it's no big deal. Other ones say it's the end of the world. The truth is somewhere in the middle. How bad of a problem is this, and is it a problem for everyone? 
Yes, like I said, there's uh, cartel activity in every major city in the United States. They are gaining complete control over drug trafficking and human trafficking. Uh, it's a problem for all of us, and it's not isolated to the border. The border sheriffs, you know, I'm, uh, I support the border sheriffs, and, you know, they are coalition fighting because they're on the front lines at the border, and that's where you hear most of the information coming from. But you can go to any city in, in, in the United States, any large city, and wherever you find the drug dealers, you're going to find Jesus Malverde and Santa Muerte and the Mexican cartels involved. And in Los Angeles, we, we solve our, we get about 650 murders, uh, gang-related murders every year. But we solve those. But what they don't tell you about is there's another 650, which we call Mexican national murders, which are cartel murders, and 99% of our murder warrants out of Los Angeles are for people from Mexico who, who kill somebody in the United States and then return to Mexico. And we don't solve those. We're going to have to have you back in the future to talk more about this. Uh, Richard, where can people get more information, get in touch with you if they want you to speak? Are you on LinkedIn, Facebook, those sort of things? Uh, yeah, I am on Facebook and LinkedIn. Uh, just search That's for it, Richard Valdemar, V-A-L-D-E-M-A-R. Richard, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Thanks for your service, both in the military and in the Sheriff's Department, and for spending time with us today. All very much appreciated. Yeah, and I want to mention that my name, Valdemar, it might sound like it's non-Hispanic, but I'm Mexican-American. I mean, my family, uh, you know, this is our heritage so I'm not, a, even though the Southern Poverty Worth, uh, Law Center called me a racist, it's not about race. Just like you said, it's about making our community safe. Thanks, Richard. Appreciate it, man. Bye. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. Yeah.